0: And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back.
1: Supplying premium malt for 25 years. Sorry, I just thought I'd just add in the extra bit, looking after the sponsor. I'm um, well, Matt. It's good Matt, to be back. Thank welcome. you. Thank you for that. Yes, uh, I, uh, I, I didn't pay the
0: bills. Um, right. I'm sure we would have got to it. It is in the show notes.
1: I think, I think it was pretty seamless. Yeah, I don't think anyone will notice that I just I slipped in that plug. That way Crymalt can get a plug in both voices. Crymalt supplying premium malt for 25 years, that Crymalt. That Crymalt.
0: The, the Malt who uh, was on the show two weeks ago and uh, to spectacularly good ratings. Uh, prof, actually the, the, the traffic, maybe people were really, really missing us because the traffic has been almost double for the first three episodes this year than uh, you know, last year. So there you go. People seem to want what,
1: want to pick up what we're putting down. Absence made the heart grow fonder perhaps. There you go. We might have to charge Graham more next year. Yeah, we kept teasing them, and uh, they said, "Well, we'll wait," and then they all came back. That's good. Matt, how's your week been? Yeah, not too bad at all. Yeah, had a uh, couple of nice beers, which were, um, which were nice. So
0: that's always good. Do you want to, <laughs> a couple? Of, well, I'm I'm glad that the nice beers were nice. Do you want to uh, give us any critique or even mention maybe what they were?
1: Yeah, no, I down at um, uh, Phillip Island, which is about 110 k's out of uh, out of Melbourne um yeah aaron 20 minutes or so away from our place and uh first week of the school holiday so we thought we'd jump down there for the weekend before easter last sort of chance to get down before the weather turns and it was good beer drinking weather for most of it apart from the drizzle but uh visited rusty water brewery which has been down on the island for six or seven years now never actually got the brewery up and running although and it was interesting i, I took a mate along can't see the brewery certainly not from here because um, it's actually brewed for them somewhere else and he was quite surprised he said I'm, I'm not enjoying it as much he said i you know and you look at the signage and and those sorts of things and the very knowledgeable and friendly staff and all that sort of thing but it was it was interesting I guess, a jolt for me that i i knew that they didn't get a planning application approval from the basco shire possibly unconfirmed rumor because the neighbor who's out the back is a very religious teetotaler and didn't want a, a brewery there but everyone assumes it's because it's next door to a uh, Koala Park, and they, you know, I know the koalas might get drunk off the fumes of mashing in. Don't know, but um, the beers were nice, and a shout out to Luke Scott who looks after the beers for them. But yeah, not not brewed down there.
0: Oh, Luke gets around. Luke Luke gets around to all of the coastal uh, breweries by the sound of it.
1: Oh, I think you know they've got a bit of capacity down there with um, you know recent expansions and make good quality, faultless beers. So if you were and I guess, you know, nowadays there are probably a few more breweries who have popped up who are able to to do contract, but certainly Prickly Moses has been doing it very well for a while.
0: There you go. Uh, any other beers? So so the beers are pretty good? Any particular standouts?
1: No, no standouts. They were just good, good, honest Faultless sort of beers, but I, I went to the Good Beer Week launch and the uh, return of the um, the gala microbrewery showcase at Fed Square, which has has returned after a, a break of I'm going to guess three years, whether I've been over at Ormond Hall or at Fitzroy Town Hall um recently it was good to be back and and it was full as a fat lady sock it was absolutely heaving at the seams uh, i went in early with for the for the trade session but even you know at, at beer o'clock as all the corporates were sort of coming out of their offices um it started to fill up and the friday evening afternoon session had already sold out and i managed to try um the new two birds pale ale which was a very nice drop as well pale ale as we'd call it up here pale yeah that's right yeah so i tried that and and interestingly because i know you know i think it's a great a lesson slash story slash not really a cautionary tale but the girls you know said look we, we wanted to be a little bit different so they they opened with a, a gold nail back and people weren't doing gold nails and then the sun sale um but i think they've kind of come around to realize that their bantam ipa which was a you know as the name suggests lightweight um ipa didn't really hit the marks that they were hoping to. So they've sort of conceded, well, maybe we do need just a, a, you know, a beautiful, well-crafted, hoppingly interesting, um, but not over-heavy Australian-style pale ale. In their uh, in their portfolio, and so I think it's I, I think it'll do well, and they've uh, taken the opportunity to, to rebrand a little bit as well. Yeah, so it, it's all looking good.
0: To to me, it shows that there's not one right way of doing it, because obviously last week we had Michael Cameron from Pirate Life saying that they deliberately didn't want to come out with you know a bunch of uh, you know golden you know lighter drinking golden ales. They wanted to have a have a range of beers that they wanted to have a range of, um, and they've done very well uh,
1: as well. Yeah, for sure, and I guess in, in a similar way to say uh, perhaps kaiju um, pirate life is sort of you you go in there expecting fairly hop driven robust, uh, but beautifully balanced and uh, I won't say easy drinking but enjoyable uh, range of beers rather than yeah your standard uh, golden pale pilsner amber and a stout or a porter. Mm. But um, so at the
0: same time they're using those beers as Michael said in the in, in the podcast. Going out to regional Australia, they're not just staying in the um, inner city craft beer bubble. They are going out and taking those to you know the untapped markets because they see that's a, a great way to to grow their business, um, but also grow the market. Um, and yeah. that's a place that a lot of brewers tend to avoid. You know, once once there is an established market, you, you see everyone piling into them but uh, they're doing it with big beers um, and two birds just make exquisite beers uh, in in, in all the categories but there's more than one way to swing a cat as they say. Or skin a cat yeah. Well you can swing a cat. Uh, No
1: room to swing a cat. There's more than one way to skin a cat.
0: Mate there's more than one way to uh, say an analogy or say a (laughs)
1: yeah there's the right way and then there's an incorrect (laughs) way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um,
1: many, many, many different options.
0: Okay, moving on. Uh, I tried a new beer this week. It was the Carlsberg Rebrew Project that uh, you know those beer geeks amongst the audience uh, may have heard of, where Carlsberg found a 133-year-old bottle of beer, cultured up the yeast, and decided to go back and you know, something that a lot of breweries have done. You know, going back through their old brewing records. Um, to try and recreate an older version of the style. This one was done...
1: Not ma- not many have done it from an actual sample, though, have they?
0: No, no, that, that's it's, very it's true. It's
1: been more uh, you know, on paper and, and converting it into water, malt, hops and yeast, but this is actually water, malt, hops and yeast and presumably not too much bubble. Uh, after 133 uh,
0: years, uh, oh well, it was there, there was carbonation in the uh, bottle. It was corked and capped. It was a, you know, it wasn't. It didn't exactly the, the cork didn't exactly uh, pop out. It was a very dark beer, so it's certainly not what you would expect a modern Carlsberg, uh beer to be. And unfortunately, as I think we discussed in the episodes, uh, one of the earlier episodes this year, 12 months ago, they did the brew and they invited journals seemingly from every continent except Australia. Um, that could sound like sour grapes because it is, um, but none from Australia. So uh, we, we weren't part of, part of it. We didn't get it when it was launched. Apparently it was sent over, but they've only just released it. Um, for some reason and it was past the use by date um, just a couple of days past the use by date so the beer had started to get a bit of oxidation to it whatever hop character may have been there 12 months ago really wasn't there but it was still a, a really interesting beer it was a uh, sort of very bold malt characters for a lager but uh yeah so again so it's, it's hard to know what it would have been like fresh but the, the process w- was certainly given the tick of approval by a lot of the guys who were there and obviously whenever it comes to historical brewing we tip our hats to Martin Cornell from Zethophile, Um and he had some very interesting things to say about the beer because he was invited to it. We might even uh, link to him in the show notes, and uh, Pete Brown also had some interesting stuff to say about it, so we might link to them in the show notes because they were there. But it was quite interesting. I did try another beer this week, Prof, but that was brewed by our guest this week, uh, who's Simon Pesh from Hong Kong Beer Co. But we might get to him uh, in a minute. Um, in other news this week, Prof, Brewdog. Brewdog has been a regular feature so far this year for various things, and uh, now we understand why they were protecting their intellectual property.
1: Yeah, I, I had a feeling you might be fizzing at the bung to uh, to get onto this story because it's, it's fair to say that you've been a, a staunch critic of, of I guess, not necessarily Brewdog's attitude, but uh, the um, hype over substance um, nature of their operation, as you see it. Is that fair to say?
0: Well, no, I think there's a lot of substance to their beers, but I think that, yeah, I mean, they are the epitome of hyperbole. You know, their whole business is about being for punks and, you know, considering they basically ripped off on their first beer the scree from stone, you sort of wonder just how out there they really are when they actually not only had to knock off the beer but also the copywriting on the bottle. You know, I've just sort of found that, well, they, they are hype- um, driven, and it's it's much more the hype speaking than the beer.
1: Yeah, one man's ripoff is another man's homage, though, isn't it?
0: Well, uh, yeah, a homage generally means you add something, not just take it and run with it. That's called theft.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but the, it was that it was that attitude, and you know, Stone don't have a copyright on on attitude to sort of you know suggest that. Look, just be prepared. Is a warning on the label. You know, it's not thin fizzy lager.
0: Yeah, Look, and I know that there are a whole range of differing views uh, about BrewDog. um, But in this case, it's a genuine news story because TSG consumer partners have acquired approximately 23% of BrewDog in a 213 million pound or 352 US dollar transaction that will see $100 million to fund its continued global expansion with the balance of proceeds providing for early shareholder liquidity. The transaction values BrewDog at approximately 1 billion pounds and the $352 million private equity investment will fund, apparently, an Australian brewery for the company. So there is a local angle to that.
1: Well, it's only fair. I mean, half the people who have brewed for BrewDog are, uh, are over here.
0: Exactly. So they're going to now so be competing. it should be
1: fairly easy to find people who know the kit.
0: The aforesaid pirate life. But uh, the reason, quite apart from the fact that we've seen a big investment in BrewDog and BrewDog are always uh, newsworthy. Uh, Again, one of the themes that we've touched on in the podcast so far this year is when we had the Chuck Harnep episode where I raised, well, look, yeah, I mean, you can get upset about the big brewers, but we are going to see a lot of private equity coming into the market and buying breweries. And what's the difference between a private equity firm that can drop $352 million investment to take BrewDog truly global, and a multinational brewery, just because their other interests aren't necessarily in beer. And it'd be worth getting the guys from the CBIA on, maybe Chris uh, McNamara, who's a regular shout out to you, Chris, to have a bit of a chat about it, because I know that there is a line of thinking that the difference isn't the size of the organisation, it's the control they exhibit in the market. But to me, whether you've got four massive brewers trying to screw small independent brewers or two massive brewers trying to screw small independent brewers. Um, And I use that very, very loosely, that idea of screwing small independent brewers. It it doesn't seem to be too much of a a deal, I think, that you know, if we just say there is this thing that's been called craft beer and you stake out your own patch within that, whether you're a big brewer or a small brewer and you do that honestly, that's just as good for beer as taking this little walled garden of we're small independent brewers when you're really actually a $352 million private equity fund.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think there's a bit to it. I mean, it, it's less. Oh, than, there's a lot to it. There's less than a lot. Twenty five percent. So it is. Go well. You know, is it? Does that factor into it? Um, is it the other interests that the um, that TSG has? Um, and obviously, everybody's brought up the the PBR um, element. Well, well, it. everyone except everyone except Brewdog
0: brought up the PBR, and and and, and that is the epitome of Brewdog's approach You know, when they announced that they'd been bought out they talked about uh, and, and I, I'm quoting from Martin Cornell um, who really should be our co-host this uh, this episode but Martin Cornell uh, made the point it was a little uh, naughty of Brewdog to describe TSG as one of the world's leading growth funds with successful investments in global brands like Pop Chips and Vitamin Water without adding that it is also a substantial minority holding in Pabst, purveyor of just the sort of industrial brews that Watt and Dicky swore they would never sell out to I'm sure that Alistair and the guys at Meantime, whose beers BrewDog withdrew from its bars after the Greenwich Brewer was bought by SAB Miller, are smiling sardonically. And that, in one paragraph, is the nutshell of uh, BrewDog. You know, having sworn that they would never sell out to the big brewers, quite happy to take money from an equally large company that is investing in those self-same big brewers that they swore that they would never sell out to.
1: Yeah, we should just point out and clarify that it's they bought 23%. They haven't bought out BrewDog.
0: Oh, no, they, they haven't. No, no. They haven't bought out,
1: yeah. but you know they, I mean, so still, 100, 100 million euros that's um it's no small coin is it that's I was quite surprised at, at um at the value that that put on you know 100 percent of of brew around the you know the billion mark
0: well given that brew is apparently valued at a hundred, brew that's Australian brew as in uh, yeah, crappy, B-R-O-O. crappy Australian lager that has never sold more than seven hundred thousand liters is valued at a hundred million Australian. I'd, I'd be a little bit disappointed and offended if I was Brewdog and didn't get at least uh, fifteen times that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, look, yeah, no, it is an interesting story um, because it does show the amount of money that's in there, and to me, it really does bring in a question: what independence means? Because whilst you can talk about, you know, there's only twenty three percent, it's not a controlling shareholding um, or whatever. You don't drop that sort of coin if you don't want a return on your investment and you don't do it as a charity because you think they, you, you like the cut of their jib and you really want to see them be the, the punk brewers. You do it because you think that you're going to get a pretty substantial. And I think it was 18%. If BrewDog sells, they want an 18% compounded return on that investment. So I'd imagine that they'll be, if not exerting a controlling interest, you know, sort of nodding and winking in, uh, in in the boys' directions about growing the company.
1: Hmm. Good luck to him, I say, because I think we need to move away from from this whole, you know, craft is small. Yeah, we were 15 years ago. But when you look at the new, um, you know, brick lane, which is about to open with a 50-heck brew house, which is 10-heck more than um, what Hawkers, for example, has grown to. and They're a, a new player on the market. You've got to have money to be able to do that. Stone yep. and wood are not the tiny little backyard operation that it used to be. Neither are four pines, neither are feral. And in fact, now a lot of the other ones that I guess even last week we considered small um, are needing to find um, some equity, some uh, dollars from somewhere to keep growing so that they can stay um,
2: on track.
0: Oh, man, I, I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, my point about BrewDog isn't that they're grown. My point is more, you know, this idea that we want to kick Lion and SAB Miller and you know these big breweries saying that they can't make craft beer because they are big multinational breweries. That's where I'm, I'm calling shenanigans because I think good beer is good beer and that's something that you and I uh, both agree in. But there seems to be this, what I regard as a falsehood, that big brewers can't make craft beer, but a $300 million investment fund can make craft beer.
1: Or, uh, well, they're, they're putting money sense? into people who already can make craft beer.
0: Oh, mate, are you saying that Chris Sheehan can't make craft beer, you know, from James Squire? No,
1: oh, I gave Chris a shout-out last week. Exactly. I, Chris is a, a brilliant brewer.
0: Exactly. So, but, you know, there's this narrative going around that, lion Nathan, you can never call their beers craft because of the size of the brewery or that you can never nail down exactly why, but you, they can't make, inverted commas, craft beer because they're a huge monolithic brewery. But yet you've got all of these guys like Chris Sheehan, um, Rob, you know, terrific. Yeah, Rob Freshwater. Yeah, Rob Freshwater. Um, you've got these, you know, Chuck Hart. You've got these terrific brewers in the organisation. But there is this mindset that they can't make good beer because they work for a massive brewery. And yet, equally talented brewers apparently are suddenly unfettered because they are now working for a brewery that is significantly owned by a huge investment fund but they can still consider themselves craft. And and that's where I think that the debate is wrong. So I, I entirely agree with you that we want to see money come in, but to me the, the narrative should be screwed less about the size of the brewery and the source of the money, but the quality about the beer and the honesty in who the ownership is. Um, and you know, Lion, I think it's much easier for the consumer to decide that, well, Lion is a big brewery and they can't hide behind that when breweries that have you know 20 or 30 professional investors who all want to return on their investment are able to claim to be this small little, essentially a small little mum and pup operation because they can wear this cloak of craft beer because they're not a big brewer, irrespective of who actually owns the um, the brewery. Yep, yep. But I, I reckon we got that one on the ground and uh, time to put a fork in it. Done. Or am I mixing metaphors again? No, uh, you just, just breaking up there, man. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, speaking of uh... don't
1: don't say let's not flog a speaking. dead horse by flogging a dead horse to show how to flog a dead horse, <laughs> whilst warning against oh, that's, flogging that's dead that's horses. It's
0: one of those YouTube instructional. Okay, uh, Hawke's Beer, did you uh, catch it last week?
1: we put we... a beer out. Yeah, we flagged it last week. Just I'll tell you what, the bloke can still talk, can he? Somebody needs to have a bit of a word to both the uh, the PR people and and Hawkey on how to do a ninety second video. <laughs> just pull the damn beer. I'm, I'm sitting there, I was Grandpa Simpsoning. Just eat the damn orange. Um, just pull the beer. We just want to see you pour the beer out and everyone che- And then we, everyone was waiting to see if he was going to scull it.
0: And he he had obviously been sculled because they cut no questions at all until he was downstairs without a beer in hand. So there was no risk. So they, they managed that quite well. But I mean, even so, Hawkey uh, still alluded to the fact that he was well known about that. And every news site. Showed footage, you know, or linked to YouTube videos, as indeed we did, but um, we did it to highlight that that was what he was known for. But anyway, look, you know, good luck to them if they can do it. I've got a note in my diary that in twelve months' time we're going to touch base and just see exactly how much money has gone off to the uh, Landcare charity after the two ex-advertising guys and the senior uh, marketing guy have been paid themselves. Just how much money goes off to Landcare, given that that was apparently what the beer was uh, made for. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, Prof, this is one that you tagged me in. Uh, uh, I, I've called this story Matt Moran's Epiphany. Do you see what I did there? Yeah,
1: I like what you did there. Yeah, you like what I did yeah. there? Uh, yeah. Auto, autocorrect didn't like it. And I'm going, no, no, that's I get what it means. Yeah. all right. We'll allow that. Uh,
0: and, and for listeners, you you may have seen on your social media channel that James Bogues has, you know, great brewery owned by a large uh, multinational brewer, has brought out a campaign trying to make beer more beer-friendly. And if you'd like some thoughts about that, um, we will link or in Or more food-friendly, even. more. So what did I say? More beer-friendly? Okay. I'm getting yeah. ahead of myself. Beer.
1: beer is generally beer-friendly. Yeah. But this one, yeah, they're trying to make it food-friendly. Food friendly.
0: White table, cloth-friendly. Um, yes, and uh, I, I draw your attention to Girl Plus Beer. Um, uh, West Australian... Uh, writer, um, she's got some very via, good thoughts. Friend of, the, friend of the program. Friend of the program. She made a had a really good article that we'll link to. But the reason that Prof tagged me on it is that one of the stories I dine out on is about seven years ago I was interviewing Matt Moran uh, for an article about his food influences. And uh, you know, seven years ago, if you cast your mind back, such on-trend foods were hamon and Vietnamese street food or Asian street food and uh, sourdough bread and I was speaking to Matt Moran and uh, he listed those three things as being his food influences if he'd been doing those things for years before they were on trend and I made the comment because I had my interest in beer I said so do you do anything you've got some beers in your fridge you've got some good beers there do you do anything beer and food and uh, having talked about his sourdough bread culture or starter um, he pretty much waved off and said oh my no beer I've got no real interest in that. And to me, that epitomized the cult of celebrity chef. You know, he was willing to name check everything um, that was on trend, but very dismissive of beer, even though beer is essentially sourdough bread or can be as complex as sourdough bread. So I've dined out on that story. And uh, I've said to Prof, uh, Prof. and I'm sure you'll uh, concur that over the years, as I said, wait till craft beer is finally a thing. And uh, we will see Matt Moran leaping all over it like a fat kid on a Mars bar. Do you recall me saying that over the years, Prof?
1: I, I do very much.
0: And uh, needless to say, uh, suddenly uh, James Squire has jumped all over Matt Moran, and uh, Matt Moran is now. James out. Bogues? Uh, no, well, James Bogues, sorry. Um, James Bogues has jumped all over. Oh, mate, you know, I'm just on a roll. I'm just on a roll. Yeah, everyone knows what I mean. Um, and uh, yes, and Matt Moran is all over it. And suddenly beer is the next culinary thing. Um, and I'm sure if you asked him, he would tell you now that he has always been all over craft beer. But uh, Prof, I've been trying to find that. I've actually been, I recorded the interview and I've been trying to find it amongst all of my old uh, audio recordings, but I haven't yet. So I'm going to have to uh, keep scouring it. But uh, Prof, you know, what, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I just remember from our conversation after you interviewed Matt um, at Aria, I think it was, up in Sydney Harbour. And, um, uh, uh, in Brisbane, Aria in Brisbane. Oh, Aria was. in Brisbane, sorry. And, uh, and yeah, the irony was lost on him that, you know, he's sort of spouting bountiful about the water and grain and yeast that goes into the, the culturing and crafting of this artisan sourdough um, without realising that, yeah, you do add hops, you've got beer. And so it was interesting, yeah, that now, you know, he's happy to put his name to, uh, you know, I just wonder now if you go to ARIA next week, if we made a booking and um, ordered, uh, can we have a, you know, a drink to go with our food? They say, yeah, certainly, would you like a red or a white? So oh, I'd like a white, thanks. Would they bring the James Bogue's um, white beer or the James Bogue's red beer? Or would they assume wine still?
0: Well, I mean, that's the other thing. It's just so simplistic the way that they've done it. You know, they it, it's just, well, you use red beer for red meat and white beer for fish um, without actually talking about flavours or anything like that.
1: Well, we've also we've also killed off over the last 20 years, we've killed off the notion of red wine with red meat and, and white wine with fish. We've actually realised that, that. That is the yeah. problem
0: with what they've done. They've got somebody that has no interest or sympathy in beer aka Matt Moran and look Matt is a fantastic chef and you know this isn't a rant about Matt but you know it, it really was one of those things that how celebrity chefs become celebrity chefs and stay you know reinventing themselves but it was just a case that he had had no interest and no sympathy in beer 7 years ago and I've called this an epiphany because I don't think he's actually had an epiphany he's been offered a shitload of money to come up with this thing so James Bogue's can lend the, you know a celebrity chef's star power to their beer and give it some credibility but in doing so he's he hasn't showed any sympathy for the liquid he's just tried to transfer as you say prof dated notions of wine onto beer and beer and wine are fundamentally different things their flavor profiles are different um, and you can't do the same thing with beer as you did with wine so it's, it's a really dated and it just shows the problem with trying to you know get the billboard version of craft beer mm. you get the celebrity chef you have a big marketing campaign and you actually don't do much to elevate beer and one of the comments that was on Facebook Doug Donilon from uh, New Zealand Hops uh, made the comment isn't you know anything that promotes beer good for beer And on on one hand, absolutely, it does. But on the other hand, you'd like to think there was a little bit of substance
1: to it. Yeah. Look, the thing I took out of it was I think it says more about James Bogue, the brand, than it did about Matt Moran or or beer and food. Because I kind of have got the feeling over the last five or six years, certainly, that Lion, I don't know whether James Bogue is the kind of the redheaded stepchild, and they're kind of, well, he's kind of in the family, but we don't really want to have to take him to all the functions. They're not quite sure where to go with it, so are they trying to kind of reinvent him? They've bought him a new suit to wheel him out at family functions. I just don't know. I think it just seems to be a a troublesome prospect for for Lion. I think it's kind of too small to be craft, and it's too... You make a really good point there, Prof, and it's something that i would not considered, but... I don't know. The mainstream
0: premium market is dead. These days, the Heinekens and the Becks and the Peroni's are what were once the James Bogues premium lager. You know, you get them for $40 a carton. And we, we saw Cascade essentially, you know, killed off because mm. CUB kept messing around. Uh, and when we were speaking to Banners last year, he made this point. You know, they kept messing around with it, messing around with it until it didn't stand for anything. And, yeah, uh, you know, it maybe it is an interesting um, play for, for Lion to try and gradually skew it into their craft brand and acknowledging that, you know, mainstream premium is a, is a dead category.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, mm. we haven't really sort of, apart from, you know, there was a, a blip 18 months, two years ago, maybe when uh, wizard Smith, uh, ale, which is a cracking drop. Um, a lovely beer. Yeah. was, was, you know, touted as, Oh, we're going to release it on the mainland and that sort of thing. And you know, I, I haven't seen it around. Um, but then it, it may be in, in places that I don't generally look or certainly in a different section. I, I sort of haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, speaking to one of the brew team leaders a few years back, after a couple of uh, refreshing ales, um, kind of said, oh, it's, "It's just troublesome because we don't actually, we can't actually sell enough volume um, to prime the pump for the filter. So they've got to kind of push whatever's next behind it through to, you know, just to fill fill the pump enough yeah. to, to to prime it to get the filter to work. So it's one of those things where you've either got to say it's too small, we've got to drop it." Because of our, our size or we've got to scale it up and and therefore probably dumb it down so that we can scale it up um, to make it more palatable for more people. That,
0: in, in a nutshell, is going back to our very first point about brew dog. I mean, that that's where big brewers can't play in, in, in the margins, particularly with a brand like James Bogues, because when Tap King was being... Brewed. That was the one beer that they brewed in Tasmania and then brought up to Sydney to package. Because the whole mystique about James Bogues is it's from the pristine waters pristine of waters Tasmania. Uh, and you yeah. know, like if even a small-ish brand like that can't find a market and they can't play in that niche without brewing it in one of their small on-mainland breweries, um, that's where craft brewers are always going to have that uh, you know, ability to, to get started, so long as the big brewers keep integrity around what their promise is um but anyway yeah no look it's a really interesting conundrum for them to have because uh you know they're left having to have a a large screen play or you know a large you know play in uh in the, the beer industry of white for white uh meat red for red meat and that's about as uh crafty or as um nuanced as we get
1: yeah i'm still also yet to find anywhere um in their online presence of what the what the beer actually is like what's what's red and white about them? Is it a is one a wit or a wheat beer or a, a blanc? I don't know. Um, is the red an amber or is it a? Um, well, I think that's a clue Celtic that red not ale actually,
0: or, I don't know. I, I think that's a clue. That they're not. Is, actually, it, is it just food coloring? Are, well, possibly, but they are targeting right outside of people who aren't into styles. That you know, beer is beer. And that there are a lot of those. I mean, there's still a big part of the population doesn't know anything about styles. So maybe th- it is it's something as simple as, you know, colour coding, you know, blue for boys, pink for girls sort of thing, you know, um, so you don't grab the wrong one um, without actually...
1: Did you just assume beer's gender?
0: No, 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 no. But just, you know, as simple as that. So, God, don't don't start writing in about... I wasn't being sexist. I was just the first, you know, duality of colours I could think of. Um, anyway. Anyway, go tell... Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going, Prof. Uh, but anyway, we're going okay, to our I guest. Would, I think they weren't educating. They just want to make it as simple as you know, painting with numbers. You know number one is red. Number two is uh, white. Anyway, <sighs> our guest. Yes, Prof. Uh, during the week, this is an interesting one, and it might surprise some of our listeners that this was our guest for this week. But during the week, I got a media release from Cathay Pacific or the. Uh, multinational PR firm that represents Cathay Pacific, talking about Betsy, their new beer, scientifically designed to be consumed at 35,000 feet. Now, my first thought is to scoff at that because it didn't actually talk about any of the science behind that they were claiming. The uh, first paragraph, as you'll hear, talked about, you know, everybody knows that our taste buds change at 35,000 feet without giving any background for that. And so I fired back a Slightly cheeky response to the public relations people. So saying, well, don't send me a media release saying, you know, beer tastes different at 35,000 feet and offer to send me a bottle of the beer without offering a plane ticket so I can actually taste it at 35,000 feet. Unfortunately, uh, the ticket didn't come but the bottle of beer did. And uh, given that it's brewed by a small brewery in Hong Kong, we've never really talked about the Asian craft beer market. I thought, well, we can have a bit of a chat about it, find out a little bit more about some of these questions and more, but also um, find out a little bit about the Hong Kong craft beer market, which has gone from two breweries to 20 in the last couple of years. So it was a good chance as any to catch up with Simon Pesh from the Hong Kong Beer Company, Prof. Have you been to Hong Kong, Prof? Did you pass through Hong Kong on any of your international travels? No. Nope. No, okay. No so, been. Anyway, no, nor have I, but, uh, and I'm not likely to be travelling Cathay Pacific at any time soon. So I did get to try the beer, but I might talk a little bit about the beer. Um, we'll let Simon tell us all about it, and I'll uh, give you my thoughts at the end of the interview. So, without any further ado, here's Simon Pesh from the Hong Kong Beer Company. Simon, welcome to Radio Brews News. As with all of our guests, and particularly the ones that aren't really uh, household names in Australia... Uh, I thought I'd start by asking, uh, who is Simon Pesh?
2: Thank you, Matt. Uh, my name is Simon Pesh. I'm in Hong Kong. I'm the brewmaster for the Hong Kong Beer Company, and uh, we started brewing here about four years ago. Uh, and the company has been in operation since 1985. Uh, but really, we took a, we took the initiative to start brewing internationally known craft beer styles in Hong Kong uh, starting in about 2014. Uh, I come from the United States. Uh, I've been brewing craft beer in the state of California for about 20 years. Uh, I worked for a large um, regional craft brewery for a number of years and uh, we won many Great American Beer Festival awards and uh, had great distribution throughout the States. And so as, um, as that market became more and more more popular, I kind of looked elsewhere and moved to, moved to Asia, moved to Hong Kong to accept the position to start up the new company, the Hong Kong Beer Company, and make beer here in Asia.
0: Now, you, you were brewing for the Pyramid Brewery in, uh, I'm just trying to uh, recall, uh, Berkeley. Berkeley in California, um, which is part of the North American Breweries uh, group, uh, and they, they brew a number of brands, don't they?
2: Yeah, North American Breweries is a, a large company that uh, owns a number of breweries. Three. Three major breweries in the United States, uh, but they have a number of brands. They do some contract brewing, but the Pyramid brand is one of them. Uh, Magic Hat is another brewery, which is a regionally popular brand in the uh, northeast United States. Uh, But North American Breweries is one of the biggest um, uh, brewers and craft brewers in the United States.
0: I just thought I'd uh, mention that because it's one of the things that we're starting to see in Australia where we're, quite a few years behind in terms of some of the growth of the craft breweries and we haven't yet seen that sort of consolidation take place but there's a lot of talk around at the moment that we might start to see brewing groups uh, such as North American breweries uh, form and and you've been brewing for a long time so you've uh, seen the real explosive growth of craft beer in North America
2: I absolutely have Um, you know I started as West Coast brewer Uh, there used to be a distinction between Brewing in California versus brewing in the Pacific Northwest, which was different than brewing on the East Coast, and and now all the regions in between have filled up with regional brewers. So there are over 4,000 breweries operating in the United States right now. Uh, when I first started brewing uh, with Pyramid in 1997, I think there were less than five or 600, um, and we we were a sizable brewery, and uh, we made a lot of beer, and, and we produced. And shipped to about 40 states in the in the union, so the market has expanded in the United States. And a lot of the bigger breweries have um, expanded by acquisition. Um, some, you know, for good, bad, or indifferent, uh, some of the brands have been um, have been purchased or acquired by other other breweries, and that's how a lot of growth in the United States that has been measured.
0: And, and what was it like to? Go from the very you know, well developed craft brewing community of North America to uh, Hong Kong, which isn't probably regarded um, as one of the, the, the craft beer hotspots uh, globally?
2: <laughs> well, it, it was a change. It was a change for me uh, to move uh, from North America to Asia. It was the first time I've lived abroad. Um, I'm much more used to it now. Uh, but, well, you know, one thing I noticed early on was that the support industries are not as prevalent in Asia as they are in this part of Asia as they are in North America. What I mean is uh, I don't have malt suppliers and hop suppliers just you know, a day or two away uh, from, from my brewery. So my lead times are longer, um, you know, I, my relationships are, are across bigger distances warehouses are in different places so our logistics changed a little bit. Uh, That was one major change. And what I really noticed uh, early on uh, when we first started brewing, we were the only, we were the second brewery in Hong Kong operating in 2014. There were were only two. And the other brewery started four months before we did. Uh, And what I noticed was um, most consumers did not know what craft brewing was. I had to start from the very beginning Although I knew that I would be... Part of my job would be educational, I had to explain to people what craft beer was four years ago. Now, now people are familiar with uh, craft beer. There are over 20 breweries in Hong Kong of different sizes. But uh, now people are familiar with craft beer in four short years. But um, it was a change for me to go from a very developed uh, consumer base and a very educated consumer base to uh, a, a new kind of... Um, Clean slate
0: in Asia. It's interesting when you say you've suddenly grown to 20 breweries. That's a very rapid growth in percentage terms. But we're talking about a smaller geographic area. But it's a on a breweries per head of population. That's still fairly small, isn't
2: it? It's still fairly small, and most most of the breweries are fairly small here in in Hong Kong. Uh, we have a population of 8 million. We have 50 million visitors a year. Uh, you know, just across the border there. are 25 million people in the neighboring Chinese city uh, and so exporting to China is something that we always look at, but uh, we're, I think we're not developed for that quite yet. But um, still, we're, I, I still think that craft beer is, is less than 2% of all beer sold in Hong Kong. So although we have a number of breweries and a number of them are, are quite small, uh, I still think that craft brewing is still very, very new to Hong Kong. And manufacturing in Hong Kong is less than four percent of the economic growth uh, of Hong Kong. So it's still a kind of a it's a new new industry and a, a new, uh, new industry for Hong Kong.
0: And with Hong Kong Beer Company, do you mainly sell packaged beer or is it mainly draft beer?
2: Well, about seventy percent of our production is in bottles. Uh, we produce both bottles and draft. Uh, we have a line. Of um, six year round beers. Uh, and again, 70% of our production is in bottles. So we service a lot of uh, food and beverage restaurants um, in Hong Kong. We serve a lot of the uh, modern Chinese cuisine restaurants uh, with our year round brands. Uh, and also a lot of the uh, supermarkets and uh, grocery stores in Hong Kong uh, by way of producing bottles. Uh, whereas we, we You know the 30% of the taps that we have in town uh, we supply a number of the uh, better ale houses in Hong Kong which are all very new Uh, they are I I would say most of the uh, better beer houses in Hong Kong or ale houses have just been established in the last three or four years so because the industry is new uh, I think there are very few um, outlets for draft beer, for craft draft beer. Um, So we're fortunate to be able to bottle, and so 70% of our production goes into bottled production. And and what sort of scale
0: do you brew at uh, at Hong Kong Beer Company? Sure.
2: Uh, We produced over 4,000 hectoliters of beer last year. Uh, And although we are not quite at capacity. Uh, I think we'll be closer to our capacity of over 6,000 hectoliters this year in 2017. Uh, Although that's not a lot of volume for a brewery, uh, we're still one of the biggest breweries in Hong Kong and and we're producing uh, more beer than most of the breweries in Hong Kong. So we're doing it by producing a lot of bottles, a lot of cases, a lot of cases and um, some kegs. but we're really not even. We haven't even started really um, exporting into into other markets. So most of our sales are in Hong Kong, and most of our sales are in bottles. And we're, uh, you know, after four years of production, we're we're closer and closer reaching our capacity. We brew at about uh, 25 hectoliters per, per batch. So a batch for us is 250 cases, and we brew four or five times a week and uh so so for us that's a lot of volume and i think for most breweries in hong kong they'd like to see that kind of volume you know i think that's uh, a good model for for most of the up-and-coming breweries uh so we're not quite a capacity but we're just over 4,000 hectoliters a year right now
0: in hong kong something of a of a melting pot there's a lot of expats uh who who work there who do you find your prime market is is it perhaps americans who are working there and brits who are working there and australians who are working there who come from craft beer cultures or communities who got craft beer cultures or are are you developing new markets over there
2: you know i like to say that there are three palates in hong kong there is definitely the expat palette you know we have european north american uh, expats here, including myself. Uh, and then we have the the younger generation of folks that have studied abroad or worked abroad and have seen the beer culture in other parts of the world and the, they are receptive to what we're doing. They're receptive to um, new styles of beer, more hops, more alcohol, something different than the norm. And then finally, I think the third palate is just the the domestic palette, which is the local palette that uh, kind of grew up on their commercial industrial loggers and and, and that 's what uh, that 's what they used to so for us, the expat uh, palette is um, something that we we 're geared to um, to brew for, uh, and I also think that um, Those who have studied abroad, those who have come back to Hong Kong or have Canadian-born or American-born that are now living in Hong Kong are also receptive to what we're brewing. And so for us, I think what's going to kind of make us a local brewery over the long term is to kind of convince the uh, the the uh, local market that, you know, being a local brewery and and making a craft product is something special and uh, something that's different than, um, something different than than having a product imported from another country, which is, um, I think, what Hong Kong has been used to for quite a while. So uh, for us, it's, you know, part of an educational process to um, make something local, make something different and distinctive, uh, and then appeal to kind of the, the broad, broad
0: ranges. I've heard that there's an Asian palate when it comes to wine, that, that Asian drinkers tend to look for certain flavor characteristics to go with food based on d- different regions. Is there such a thing as an Asian beer palate, or is is it those you know, crisp, refreshing, lager-style beers that uh, uh, tend to get exported?
2: Well, it depends. So I, I would I would not want to generalize, but I do know that... You know, initially when we started brewing and styles were new to the local palate, I would I would get the comment that our beer was particularly bitter, uh, and that was not favored. That was not something that people expected in a beer. Um, And we, my other really funny story is that I've had plenty of people tell me that they don't like dark beer. We make a stout, we make an oatmeal stout, and I've had plenty of people, particularly women, tell me that they don't like dark beer. And I would say, "Well, do you like coffee?" And they said, "Yes, we like coffee." "Oh, do you like chocolate?" "Yes, I like chocolate." "Would you like to try this beer? It tastes like coffee and chocolate." "Well, no, I don't like dark beer." <laughs> After two or three sips, they will come back and ask for more. <laughs> so, so a lot of a lot of the times people don't what I've noticed is that in Hong Kong people have a, a, a certain perception of what a dark beer will be, of what a bitter beer will be. So without even trying, they sort of have a perception of, of what that beer will taste like to them, and they are have already decided that they, they do not favor that uh, style of beer. So for me, you know, it's been kind of a, um, I don't know, uh, to, 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 to a degree I feel like I'm kind of convincing people that, you know, the beer that we're making is good, uh, just because it's bitter doesn't mean that it's, you know, off-putting, and just because it's dark doesn't mean it's strong and 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 alcoholic, and and you can try different beers, and if you try them, you'll probably like them, but you have to try them first. So, so there's a there's a little bit of coercion. I think that I have to, I have to perform once in a while, but um, in general, uh, I would also say. Kind of a a broad range but i would say that unfiltered beer goes over very well here in hong kong so unfiltered wheat beer has been popular for us as well
0: i have to say that i don't think it's a unique experience Uh, i do a lot of food tastings beer and food tastings myself i don't like dark beer as well and i often get around that by singing from the same song sheet that you were singing from. Do you like chocolate? Do you like coffee? And then if they're particularly hard to sell, I'll uh, make what I call a stout affogato and add vanilla bean ice cream and frangelico. And instead of using coffee, use that stout. And uh, there's something about drinking beer and ice cream that resets their perception button and they do start getting those uh, chocolate and coffee and caramel flavours as opposed to the burnt toast that they associate with dark beers if they've tried perhaps Guinness.
2: Yeah, I think I have, experience something very, very similar. We make an oatmeal stout, which is very full-bodied, not very alcoholic, but, you know, full-flavoured as well. And I think that really surprises people, and it, surprise, it surprises them that they like it.
0: Why do you think the cloudy beers are the beers that have really uh, penetrated or that you get a good response to?
2: Well, you know, I think, to a degree, that other brands have set the tone that the unfiltered beer, be it a wheat beer or something else, the unfiltered beer is something out of the norm, still very approachable, but also more of a gourmet product. And that's interesting to me. It's not something I expected when I started making beer here, but it's something that I've heard from other people that kind of give me you know, advice, but I've also seen folks in, in town enjoying the big glass of unfiltered beer because it's, some, it's, it's not a commercial lager, but it is something approachable, but also um, somewhat gourmet. Now, now, you're
0: purely a production brewery. You don't have your own uh, brew pub. You don't have your own cellar door
2: outlet. That is correct. Uh, we are a food factory. We're a brewery. Uh, strictly, strictly production brewing. Uh, and we do not have a retail outlet.
0: Now, the, the reason that we uh, wanted to chat, uh, and that's all been a great sideline. Uh, I've been fascinated to hear about the craft beer market in Hong Kong. But you've recently been approached by Cathay Pacific to develop a beer for consuming in-flight.
2: We have. We are in production, uh, and we have worked closely with Cafe Pacific over the last couple of months to produce a beer, which was designed to be served and enjoyed at 35,000 feet, essentially to be consumed at altitude.
0: Now, the media release uh, that always, as a journalist, uh, piques my interest, it started with the sentence, it's no secret that cabin pressure and altitude affects passengers' senses, dulling taste buds by up to 30%. But I suspect for a lot of people, that actually would be a secret and they'd be a little bit surprised to hear that. Did you look into the science behind taste at altitude before you developed the beer?
2: Well, I learned a lot from the Cathay Pacific group, and I worked closely with the with the uh, catering services early on in the development. Uh, when I did research, mm-hmm. and what they were telling me was that you know they they work diligently to improve their services and the business and first classes in particular, and all all classes uh, overall. But when they choose products, they initially taste. Especially with beverages, they'll taste wines, for example, uh, at sea level, and choose wines they think will match a menu that will be, you know, presentable at altitude. And then they go to the next phase. They go to the next um, part of the 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 vetting process, and will taste beer or wine at altitude, and then determine that it's not what they wanted. It's not what they expected. What what tasted like the uh, the the appropriate wine at sea level did not have the same effect did not taste as good wasn't accepted at altitude so i learned a lot from that and um part of our process in making this beer was for me literally to make a trial brew and travel you know at altitude above 35,000 feet and taste uh, some of our trial brews at altitude so i would have the same experience uh and i did and um so we talked about it quite a bit and uh, it, it wasn't until I physically had the experience of, of uh, tasting a beer that I was familiar with at altitude that I really had the full effect of the differences uh, that the conditions of uh, a pressurized cabin at altitude have on the palate. And, and can
0: you talk a little bit about what, how that translates in terms of beer? What, what happens physically but then what does that lead to in, in our perception of taste for the beer?
2: Well, one one factor, and I think we all know this uh, when we fly, is that the air is not only pressurized, but it's also much drier. Uh, It's it's not a humid environment at all. It's a drier environment. And so that has an effect on on your palate. It really does. Um, The classic example is um, tomato, tomato juice. And I know that people that don't drink tomato juice will drink this salty, fruity beverage at altitude because it actually has some flavor at altitude, and it's uh, maybe your body's craving minerals. Um, but for me, tasting beer that I make in in Hong Kong at sea level tastes different at altitude, and tastes different, I think, because my palate is dry, because the air is in the cabin is pressurized. Uh, so what for me, what is not perceived as bitter at sea level is perceived as bitter at altitude, and what is perceived as sweet to a degree is perceived as dry at altitude. So that was a kind of a revelation to me, so it was interesting to, to kind of reverse engineer my own uh, taste perception, my own you know, sense of taste, um, backwards to kind of make something that would taste you know, uh, how we wanted it to taste when it was at altitude
0: and and so tell tell us about the style of beer you've brewed
2: we made a wheat beer uh we made a wheat beer for cathay pacific and it's called betsy betsy's the name of the beer named after the first aircraft that cathay pacific ever flew so this is kind of an homage to the history of cathay pacific and we brewed an unfiltered wheat beer to christen the new route from Hong Kong to Gatwick, England. Uh, so the, the idea was to use components uh, outside of normal kind of brewing recipes uh, that were specific to Hong Kong, then uh, also specific to uh, the UK, uh, so that uh, we could have a tie-in with local ingredients on each end of the route, uh, but also make a beer that was, you know, approachable and, and, and enjoyable at altitude. So we decided to make an unfiltered wheat beer. Uh, and I think that was really interesting. And I think that by doing so, uh, we produced a beer with a lot of texture and flavors from yeast, which is present in an unfiltered beer, which supported some of the other ingredients, which were fuggle hops from the UK uh, and honey that we brewed with and fermented in Hong Kong. Uh, and the other Hong Kong ingredient was uh, Longanberry, which is a seasonal subtropical, subtropical fruit, which is commonly used here in Hong Kong.
0: And the, the, the beer that you've come up with, the uh, cloudy wheat beer, what were the properties of that, or what properties did you add to it to get around those issues that you talked about, about taste at 35,000
2: feet? Well, I, we, we did a couple of things. Um, I do think producing a wheat beer that was unfiltered did lend texture to the recipe, which is part of your sensory experience at any altitude, at sea level or at altitude. So I think, I think that was a good choice. Uh, in addition, I believe that Betsy beer can be perceived as sweet here at uh, sea level, but at altitude it is not. It, it's actually perceived as quite dry. And, and I think that's a very interesting um, aspect of, of the beer. So, to make a beer that was sweeter than I would normally make, and that sea level, uh, to be enjoyed at altitude was interesting. I really focused on texture as well, and so what we did is we, we carbonated, carbonated the beer a uh, little, little more than we normally would. So, we increased our CO2 content by about 10%, so that there was just that extra texture on the tongue to help stimulate. Uh, your sensory perception of the beer at, at altitude, just like uh, sparkling water or just like champagne. That's interesting
0: because there's an Australian brewery that's been working with an aerospace firm to develop a beer that they call the Space Beer, figuring that once these uh, tourist services are going to start going to space, they're going to need a beer to, to, to go into space. And they've had to very much lower the, the carbonation because once you get to zero gravity, the carbonation actually forces it the the beer back up, um, so the added pressure forces itself out of the person. but at thirty five thousand feet that adds texture and flavor.
2: I think it definitely does. And, um, and I think that just opens up your sensory receptors, you know to all the other subtle components. The uh, so long and berry and honey and, and fuggle hops and, and the texture and flavor of yeast and, and wheat and the unfiltered beer, um, so I think we just kind of set, set all the all the layers in play to enjoy a very approachable drinkable beer at, at altitude we weren 't trying to make a beer that was overly alcoholic we weren 't trying to make a beer that was overly bitter it 's not not kind of a hophead beer uh, it was something to be. You know, enjoyed and and it have kind of something for everyone, uh, without being you know, a commercial commercial beer.
0: Well, I'm I'm looking. I believe I'm uh, getting centre a bottle. It, it's not coming with a plane ticket. I'm assured. Um, so I'm going to be trying it on the ground. So I'm I'm interested to hear you say that at altitude it tastes sweet, but on the ground it tastes quite dry, uh, particularly given that it's got honey and fruit as part of the, the ingredients.
2: Well, it was a surprise to me too, and this was something I learned from actually tasting our trials at uh, an altitude. So I had not done as much research as the um, catering department at uh, Cafe Pacific, so it wasn't until I really experienced the uh, effects of a dull sensory perception and, and really analyzed you know, for myself what the differences were that I really understood that uh, we had to engineer something that would be uh, that would fit the bill, honestly. So it was it was a learning experience for me. And is
0: this going to become a permanent addition on Cathay Pacific, or is it a, a limited time only?
2: Well, I mean, I think Cathay can speak to that. What I do know is that the initial launch for the Betsy beer is a two month period, uh, the month of uh, April, May, March, April. I don't know. Uh, It's a two month launch. And I do know that the beer is available in the first and business class lounges in the UK, uh, in flight to the UK from Hong Kong. uh, And they are opening up the Betsy beer to the routes to Australia right now. And uh, they're talking about opening up. Betsy beer to the routes and the lounges in North America as well. And we'll see where it goes. I mean, the, the first batch of, of Betsy that we've done has, has gone well. and you know, We've made about 80% more than we expected to make because the launch has gone so well. Um, they've, they've ordered more. Uh, so we're happy with that. And um, over the course of the last few months, uh, it's really been received well. <laughs> it's really been received well. We have done a, a, a public launch here in Hong Kong with uh, the tasting panel that helped us um, build the recipe. Uh, and all of the uh, cafe executives and, and priority members were really receptive to uh, to the, the final product, to the Betsy beer that we made. We did the same thing in London. We did the same thing in London three weeks ago. Uh, and the beer has been exceptionally well received uh, by everyone, so that's fantastic. And uh, we just served a lot of Betsy beer at the Hong Kong Sevens Tournament. <laughs> this weekend uh, and we're just getting great feedback so we're hoping that we can make more of it for uh, more routes and for any reason that Cathay wants to uh, expand the program
0: It it says a lot about the growth of the craft beer market and the position that craft beer currently occupies that it seems to be the go-to for cruise liners, uh, airlines, restaurants are coming out with their own beer that you know after a long time of being seen as nothing more than liquid refreshment we're starting to see it almost become a uh, you know dare I say gimmick that can be that it that it's so popular these days and it's so on trend that we are seeing uh, businesses that have traditionally not worried too much about beer uh, getting involved in it
2: Well, I think you're right. I think that that people are starting to understand, and this is part of the education process, and people are starting to understand that there are alternatives and that people can enjoy a better beverage and uh, there's not much cost involved in enjoying a better beverage. It's just a matter of Knowing what you like and 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 finding what you like, and I think there are plenty of us out there, plenty of artisans that that are proponents of, of making new styles and and we like experimenting and we like pioneering new new brands so I think that's a lot of fun for us and I think that um, it's to everyone's benefit every consumer's benefit to see you know smaller markets grow bigger and to have you know, more options and, and better options available to you. And it's, it's great when, when big companies like Cafe Pacific take on a project like this and, and I think they're happy with what we've done so far. So I just hope it kind of becomes more of a trend and, and more of a norm. Do you think we'll
0: see, uh, I know a lot of Australian craft breweries are eyeing off uh, Hong Kong and China as potential export markets. Do you think we are gonna see the sort of growth that there will be a, Market for beers from Australia and America and Hong Kong getting into China?
2: Yes. (laughs) In a word, yes. Uh, uh, Some of the big American brewers are building breweries in China right now. Um, There's been some acquisitions from large breweries that have acquired uh, major shares of brewery chains in China. Um, And there are a number of factors for that, but I do think that... um, you know, in the in the near future, there'll be a saturation point in the major markets. I'll, I'll just say, in, in the United States, there'll be a saturation point where, in order to 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 grow, we'll have to go to new markets. And and in China, the middle class is growing, and uh, China is opening up, and people have more expendable income than before. And um, that's one reason one reason that I made the move to to come out here and make beer. Um, you know craft beer, and I think that we're just going to see more and more of it uh, in, in Asia because we have such a large population of people here.
0: And, and do you think that middle class will embrace the flavors of craft beer, or do you think they'll uh, keep the same flavors and turn to premium
2: versions of those styles? There will always be a market for the commercial loggers, always, uh, and, um, and they're big breweries and, and, and the big breweries can make beer at a certain price point, you know, once a, once a so, when there are some price points that craft breweries can't beat, and so the volume game uh, for a lot of breweries, uh, but I do think that over time, and it might take a generation, consumers in Asia will adapt and will prefer um, Stronger beer, more stronger meaning more, more alcoholic, uh, hoppier beer, and more flavorful beer. And I think that's, I think we're, we're just on the precipice of that. There are a lot of a lot of breweries in, in Asia doing that right now. Terrific. Well,
0: Simon, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. All the best with the, the, the beer to be consumed at 35,000 feet. And if you do need more testers, uh, I am more than happy to uh, throw my tongue on the line to, uh, to trip over to London to give it a crack. <laughs> Very good.
2: Well then, I'll see you in flight.
0: (laughs) Terrific. Thanks very much, Simon.
2: Thank you. In the garden, what a garden!
0: Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. There you go, Prof. Now, you weren't part of that interview, so uh, I'll let you listen to that on Friday when it comes through. But uh, the beer itself, um, he, Simon did talk a lot about cloudy beers and how they were um, quite popular. The beer itself was, I mean, look, it's sort of a mashup between a German, it, it wasn't really a Belgian Wit beer, but it was closer to a Wit beer than it was to a German wheat beer. Um, very, very cloudy, really quite pleasant. Um, how it changes uh at, at height with the dry air and the altitude and the pressurization i don't know but and it really was quite a pl- pleasant beer and uh, as i said during the interview prof i think it shows the state of the market that you've even got uh, international airliners wanting to jump on the craft beer bandwagon much the same as uh, international uh, celebrity chefs are
1: yeah look without having heard the interview um, i'll give him a couple of tips to start off with if you want to okay so our sense of taste and our perception of flavour is dull by around about 30% at altitude. So the first thing is um, offer glasses or a plastic cup for people to put their beer in rather than making them neck it out of the bottle or the can because you don't do that with wine. So let's start doing that with beer. Secondly, if you if beer has 30% less flavour at altitude, wouldn't you just put more hops and more malt in, say, 30% more? I don't know. Is that being too simplistic? Uh, because it's, it's not really about style, is it? It's about the fact that you don't get the flavours No, but I get, look,
0: you know, look to, to play the devil's advocate, which is on you know, a up I'm never used to playing, but um, it, it's still an international uh, airline where they've got to appeal to the widest audience and you're never going to put a super hoppy beer when you're not an airline that is going for a complex beer list because it's just not going to sell, um, you know, very, very well. And I, I've just come back from a cruise ship, uh, another... Beer tasting as I flagged last week uh, on the PNO, and you know, I had a chat to them about maybe getting some more interesting beers, e- even from the CUB range, who have the have the control. And they just I said, look, you know, happy to do it, but the problem is that they just don't sell outside. You know, you can use them in the tasting, but if we stock them on board, they just don't sell. And that is where we are at that interesting stage of the the, the market that there is people starting to demand things, but they're still not broad based enough that you know, a big operation. Um, is going to sell enough of them to justify having them uh, on board. And I would have thought, you know, like a 747 has less space than a 300-metre-long cruise ship. Um, so the beer that they're going to make isn't going to be super hoppy. They're just going to have a beer that has been proved to be a, a winner amongst a broader number of people.
1: Yeah. Oh, good luck to them. We'll watch the space. Yeah. Uh,
0: what do you got on this week, Prof? Oh, actually, no, before we get to that, Prof, before we get to the very end of the show, we actually have a letter this week. Oh, cards and all letters. We've got a letter. Cards and all letters. Uh, Lovely uh, email dropped in to the mailbox this week. Hi, Matt and Pete. Just wanted to drop a quick note and say well done for two excellent episodes of Radio Brews News in a row through the interviews with Michael Cameron and David Cryer. The industry insights that David and Michael provided during the last two episodes had me listening more attentively than I've ever listened before. Two great voices of the local beer industry. I actually started writing notes during both the episodes, something I've never done before. I'm definitely enjoying the recent elevation in your podcast quality. Thank you, Freya. And regular programming, when will we hear James Atkinson on an episode? Looking forward to catching the action live at the Good Beer Week Trade Hub. Cheers, James Davidson, Marketing Manager. Now, whilst, Prof, I have to say, whilst that was a lovely letter from uh, James Davidson, James, regular listeners might know, was a, a long-time contributor to the website. And I'm a little uh, upset that he obviously didn't think too much of the podcast
1: when he was actually working for the... Uh, the organisation. For for the site. Yes, Yes. Well, no, I, oh, I think well. he's just saying it was he's enjoying it more now, not that he was enjoying it less then.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. Potato, potato.
0: Fair enough. Okay, mate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, James, and uh, thank you very much. And uh, you'll be very pleased to know, James, that next week you'll be hearing James Atkinson on an episode. Uh, James is over in the US for the Craft Brewers Conference at the moment, and he's got Ray Daniels and Prof. We were talking about uh, Ray Daniels and... Head of the Cisco yep. programme. Ray Daniels
1: is the head of the Cisroan program. Well, yep. oh, that's
0: Ray Daniels. Okay.
1: It's in your notes.
0: No, no, it's not <laughs> in my notes. That's a problem.
1: Is it is it the is it the, the head of the Craft Brewers Association? Or
0: No, it's not the head of the Craft Brewers yeah. Association. Just bear with me, listeners.
1: The convener of CS- uh, CBC?
0: No. I thought I told you this off air. You're meant to be the guy that remembers this stuff. It only came in overnight. I'm just having a complete mental blank. Uh, I'll, I'll
1: pat while you look there. Um,
0: and, and thank no, Randy you Mosher. It. Randy Mosher. Randy Mosher. How can I forget Randy Mosher? Um, legend uh, of Brewing the Style. So he's yeah. we've got two great interviews, 20 minutes each, um, with uh, Randy Mosher and Ray Daniels. Um, and so you will be hearing James uh, next week um, and two really, really cool interviews.
1: And thank you, so prof, thank we, you to James Davidson too for um, for that letter because it allowed Freya, if nothing else, to break her duck and actually um, rustle up a, a piece of music for us for our cards and letters.
0: Now, just so Freya knows, because she hasn't had to do it, we always introduce the uh, mailbox with a letter-themed tune. So do your worst or your best. Sorry, Prof, I was mixing metaphors again. Um, but yeah, no. So listeners, if you want, like to give us a shout out, tell us that we're improving. Tell us we're not improving. Uh, tell us if you want to hear more of Prof, which is a recurring theme, you can get in touch with us by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. Uh, you can call and leave a message if you'd like to hear your own dulcet tones on the podcast by calling 07-3040-1508 and uh, leave your name and message at the tone. Or you can leave some feedback on iTunes, uh, as many stars as you think we deserve, and some feedback. Uh, and the best thing about that is you'll also let other potential listeners find the podcast. It's the best way that we know to get more and more people listening to it. If you do like the show, you can become an executive producer or a producer by making a small donation of as little as $5 a month. One cup of coffee, as I like to say, and you can do that by going to the webpage that is in the show notes or just go to Brews News and click on Podcast Radio Brews News. Prof, what are you up to this week? That's enough of our commercial, grubby commercialism.
1: Yeah, no, um, family over on uh, Friday and as this is coming out, and uh, on Easter Sunday, and uh, enjoying some family time. Awesome.
0: Well, enjoy that. Uh, and I've
1: got some stone. I've got some stone and wood Pacific ale in the fridge, and I've got some uh, Dr. Tim's from Coopers uh, as well.
0: Actually, I've got some. Shout out to i, I received a carton of the Black Hops Pale Ale that they've just pale ale prof for you. It's just a landed, and it's a delightful beer. So I've heard very good things about it from people who. Uh, whose opinions I value. So I'm very much looking forward and I'll report back next week. Done. Awesome, Prof. Always good to chat. Feels like we've covered a lot of ground this week. I know it's been uh, a very long show and uh, our producer is giving me the wind-up because that was one of the notes that she gave us is that we need to keep the shows to the same length. So we're doing our very best. But I think we covered a lot of ground this week. We did. Let's see how much we cover next week. Prof, always good to chat. Look forward to chatting with you next week. Listeners, thank you for joining us.
1: And we're out. I'm not. Wait for it.
0: I just, Wait, so, oh. so you don't want to have, a, so so you don't want to have, you don't want to have a little bit of banter for the, uh, you know, uh, an Easter egg at the end prof.
1: No, I think it's you know it's a bit, a bit gauche to, to do Easter eggs at Easter. Don't upset the Christians. Oh,
0: good point. Good point. You, you you make a good point.
1: Yeah, unless they use halal Easter eggs. Oh, I a good okay. joke about it no, no, actually no. terrorist. No, 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 no. no we've been not. Um, next show, I promise, we'll, we'll have. Um, well, actually, next, yeah, it'll just be, Just consider this a trigger warning for all of the snowflakes out there. <laughs> I'm not, not going to hold back.
2: And now we're out.